Welcome back to Fables Agreed Upon, a historical true crime podcast. I'm your host, Danny, And I'm your co-host, Quinn. And today will be part two of our Donner Party mini-series. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I would strongly encourage you to go back and give it a listen. But if you haven't, here's a quick recap. The Donner Party, originally just 31 people, left Springfield, Illinois in April of 1846. Along the way, this group is joined by other groups, and they are encouraged by Lansford Hastings to take a new route that Hastings says will save them 300 miles. Since they're already running late, 87 people decide to give it a go. But it's longer and more treacherous than advertised, and a series of misfortunes cause the Donner Party to lose a lot of time. Tensions are running high, and a squabble between John Snyder and James Reed ends with Snyder dead and Reed exiled. On top of everything else, winter comes a month early, rendering the Sierra Nevada mountains impassable. As a result, the party is stranded in a few hastily built little cabins, trapped in the snow near what is now known as Donner Lake. It is here on the shore of this little lake that our story resumes. Yes, remember me, baby, when I'm in six feet of cold, cold ground. Just remember me, baby, when I'm in six feet of cold, cold ground. Always think of me, mama, just say there's a good man gone down. Don't cry, baby, baby, after I'm gone. Patrick Dolan, Patrick Breen, and the rest of the Breen family stayed in the abandoned cabin. Louis Keysburg built a little lean-to against the exterior wall of that cabin. William Eddy and William Foster built a log cabin for their families. Charles T. Stanton also built a cabin which housed the Grace family, Margaret Reed, and the Reed children. The Donners and Mrs. Wolfinger, having been delayed a bit by a wagon accident that nearly killed Eliza and Georgia, George and Tamsin's daughters, made a shelter for their family a little ways back near Alder Creek. The front axle on the wagon had broken on a steep hill and it went tumbling and the two girls who were napping inside were nearly crushed by the wagon's contents. They were okay though, luckily, but the delay in fixing the axle meant, even though they had once been at the front of the party, they were now miles behind everyone else. So when they set up camp, it was a few miles from the rest of the travelers. Also, George was injured while fixing the axle when Jacob's chisel slipped and cut George's hand pretty severely. Anyway, for those of you at home, I'm showing Quentin a map right now, and I'll tweet it out when the show goes up. So you can see there's the Donner Camp up here by Alder Creek, and then everybody else is by what on the map is labeled as Truckee Lake, but we now call it Donner Lake. And this is about five miles away. But why do they call it Donner Lake if the Donners aren't near that lake everyone else is? Because it's the Donner Party. No sooner had they set up camp when the snow began, and it snowed almost constantly for eight days. During those eight days, most of the remaining oxen wandered off and took the party's hope with them. Eliza Donner later wrote, Father's face was very grave. His morning caress had all of its wonted tenderness, but the merry twinkle was gone from his eye and the gladsome note from his voice. For eight consecutive days, the fatal snow fell with but few short intermissions. Eight days in which there was nothing to break the monotony of torturing and active endurance, except the necessities of gathering wood, keeping the fires, cutting anew the steps which led upward as the snow increased in depth. Hope well nigh died within us. 
On November 20th, Patrick Breen wrote the first entry in his diary, and it's this diary that is one of our main primary sources for the events at the lake until March 1st when he stopped writing. He wrote, Friday, November 20th, 1846, came to this place on the 31st of last month. We went on to the pass, the snow so deep we were unable to find the road, when within three miles of the summit then turned back to this little shanty on the lake. Stan came one day after we arrived here. We again took our teams and wagons and made another unsuccessful attempt to cross in company with Stan. We returned to the shanty, it continuing to snow all the time we were here. We now have killed most part of our cattle, having to stay here until next spring and live on poor beef without bread or salt. After this first entry, he mostly writes about the weather and the various attempts to cross the mountain and keeps a record of deaths in camp. It's sort of written like extremely concisely, like it reminds me of how they used to write telegrams. So it's better than the log the two guys had at the beginning. I mean, it's a little more in-depth, but it's still, like, very concise. Anyway, the party tried several times to cross the mountain. On November 12th, 13 men and two women tried to get to Sutter's Fort, but blocked by a 10-foot snowdrift, they went back to the camp. At one point, Mrs. Reed, Virginia Reed, Milton Elliott, and Eliza Donner tried to cross the mountain for help. Eliza went back to camp the first day, while the rest of them carried on until they awoke one morning to find that the campfire had melted the snow around them, so they had all sunk many feet into the snow, and climbing out was dangerous because it could cause an avalanche. So they eventually made it out, but they went back to camp. Another group, led by William Eddy and Charles T. Stanton, made another attempt, but they also returned to camp on November 21st. On December 15th, Bayless Williams, one of the Reed family employees, was the first to die of hunger. On December 16th, another party leaves to go find help. Now, here's where we kind of branch off into three concurrent narratives. So, which do you want first? The good, the bad, or the really bad? I guess the good. So, while everything else is going on in our other timelines, James Reed, who had previously been banished for killing John Snyder, supposedly in self-defense, arrives in California. Once there, he seeks help from the locals. He petitions the governor and Naval Lieutenant Washington A. Bartlett and several others asking for help. He also meets with the local people and he's able to raise over a thousand dollars and gather provisions. Which is how much in today's money? A lot? I haven't done the math, but yeah, a lot. <laughs> so he and William McCutcheon, who had previously been left behind on the supply run to Sutter's Fort because he was too sick to come back, set out to rescue everyone at Donner Lake. But by then it's late autumn, and with the snow and everything, they just aren't able to get through, and they have to bury their supplies for later and turn around and go back. In a statement later on, William McCutcheon writes, I state that it was utterly impossible for any two men to have done more than we did in striving to get into the people. A company of men might have succeeded. Basically, it just wasn't possible for the two of them to get there alone through the snow. But they keep working to raise money and gather volunteers for another trip. So now we come to the bad. So, while the Forlorn Hope is trying to get help, and we'll talk about them in a minute. Sounds like a Star Wars. A little. So, while the Forlorn Hope is trying to get help, and James Reed is trying to get back to help, a bunch of people are just stuck at Donner Lake, undergoing horrors we can't really comprehend as people who've never lived through something like that. So, on December 21st, Patrick Breen noted that Milton had come by with news from the Donner's family camp, which if you remember was about five miles away from everyone else that Jacob Donner, Sam Shoemaker, Joseph Reinhardt, and James Smith were dead. Rip. According to Eliza Donner's account, George and Samson Donner had sat with Jacob Donner as he passed away. She also wrote that Samuel Shoemaker's death was peaceful. He passed away, quote, in a happy delirium and, quote, imagined himself as a boy again in his father's house and thought his mother had built a fire and set before him the food of which he was fondest. 
Which, if you're gonna die of starvation, that's a good hallucination to have and certainly beats being aware of the reality of your situation. Me on my deathbed. Mm, I do love Crunchwraps. What a nice day to have a Crunchwrap surrounded by my Squishmallows. Your experiences are not <laughs> universal. Additionally, by Eliza's account, James Smith's death was like a tired child falling asleep. But not all the deaths were peaceful. She wrote, When Joseph Reinhardt's end drew near, his mind wandered and his whitening lips confessed a part in Mr. Wolfinger's death. Wolfinger, if you recall, was the guy who disappeared on the way under kind of suspicious circumstances, and then Reinhardt and Spitzer were later found in possession Keysburg of his gun. Him. I mean, Kiesberg has not confessed to this. Joseph Reinhardt did just confess. Could Kiesberg be implicated in that? Perhaps we don't know at this juncture. He he disappeared under suspicious circumstances, and now Joseph Reinhardt is confessing to killing him, so... Certainly fishy. They couldn't be certain, though, whether this was, like, a genuine confession, or just him going, like, a little bit crazy on his deathbed, but personally I'm inclined to believe him. On Christmas Eve, the infant boy Louis Kiesberg Jr. passed away in Kiesberg's lean-to. Like, he, this dude has a family instead of building them an actual house or, like, staying with someone who has an actual house. So I understand what you're saying about him just, like, building them a lean-to. By some accounts, at some point he kind of maims his foot, and I'm not sure if that happens before or after or while he's building the lean-to or what. Dude is not getting around great at the time. And he's an asshole, so no one's gonna help him build something for his family. That's one take on it, yeah. But so his infant boy passes away on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas, the Reed family had dried apples, beans, and a small piece of bacon, a meager Christmas feast that Mrs. Reed had set aside for the occasion. Virginia Reed later wrote, Poor little children were crying with hunger, and mothers were crying because they had so little to give their children. Like, they're just in dire straits at this point. On December 29th, Dutch Charlie Berger, also known as Carl Berger, who worked for the Donners, passed away. According to Patrick Breen, he had with him about $1.50, two silver watches, a razor, and a gold pin, which Louis Kiesberg took, and a coat and a waistcoat, which Augustus Spitzer took. Listen, he's dead, I get taking his coat to stay warm, but I don't really understand taking his little trinkets, and I think that's a little suspicious. Because Kiesberg is an asshole. Also, slightly condemning Kiesberg is an entry by Breen the same day. Charlie's sick. Kiesberg has Wolfing's rifle gun. I'm not saying Kiesberg shot Charlie. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the timing of the entry, the way that it's written, that is where my mind went at first glance, just knowing, like, the pop culture surrounding Kiesberg. By the end of December, Bayless Williams, Jacob Donner, Louis Kiesberg Jr., Charlie Berger, Samuel, Samuel Shoemaker, James Smith, Joseph Reinhardt were all dead, and on January 3rd, 16-year-old John Murphy passed away, too. One of the main issues was that while they had a decent amount of cattle left to eat, and they killed them and buried them in the snow to preserve them until they were needed, it kept snowing, and soon the snow was higher than their guard marks. So they were starving to death, surrounded by food that they just couldn't find under, like, 12 to 14 foot snowdrifts. At one point, Noah James and John Baptiste Trudeau, who were camping with the Donner family, suggested that since they couldn't find the dead cattle, they could eat the people who had passed away. By Eliza Donner's account, her father George refused, and said like, hey, we're, we're not doing that. We are not that bad yet. <laughs> On February 2nd, one-year-old Harriet McCutcheon passed away, and the next day, Margaret Eddy, another infant, passed away as well, followed by her mother, Eleanor Eddy, on February 7th. 
Augustus Spitzer died the same day. Then on February 9th, Milton Elliott, who worked for the Reeds, passed away. And then on February 20th, another infant, Karen Pike, passed away as well. So now we get to the really bad. So while everything is going on in our other two narratives, a group of 15 people, 10 men and 5 women, although I would argue 9 men, a boy, and 5 women, since known as the Forlorn Hope, set out to find help. Specifically, the party consisted of William Eddy, Patrick Dolan, Lemuel Murphy, who was 12. So I would argue not yeah, a man. Yeah. William Foster, Sarah Foster, Jay Fosdick, Sarah Fosdick, Amanda McCutcheon, Harriet Pike, Mary Graves, Franklin Graves Sr., Charles Stanton, Antonio, and Louis and Salvador, who, if you remember, they had come from Sutter's Fort with supplies. Um, in many cases, husbands and wives were divided, parents left behind children, but all with the hope that they would get through soon and they would send back help for their loved ones. On December 16th, they fashioned homemade snowshoes and set out with six days worth of rations. In many cases, husbands and wives were divided and parents left behind children, but all with the hope that they would get through soon and send back help for their loved ones. On December 16th, they fashioned homemade snowshoes and set out with six days' worth of rations, a rifle, a flint, and a hatchet. Virginia Reed later wrote, The horrors endured by that forlorn hope no pen can describe nor imagination conceive. And Eliza Donner later wrote, Words cannot picture nor mind conceive more torturing hardships and privations than were endured by that little band on its way to the settlement. On the first day, William Murphy and Charles Berger, who had originally left with the party but aren't accounted among that 15, they just couldn't go on anymore and they went back to camp. So we don't count them, but they did leave with them. Then there were the storms to contend with. So by the third day, December 19th, Charles Stanton had gone blind from hunger or sickness or snow blindness. And by December 22nd, they were out of food. Or most of them were. William Eddy's wife, Eleanor, had packed, in secret, a small bag with about a half a pound of dried bear meat. He found this on the first day, but there was a note from his wife begging him to keep it a secret and save it until his hour of, quote, direst need. She likely saved his life by doing this. On December 23rd, Charles Stanton, then 35 years old, decided to stay behind by the campfire, knowing he was going to die soon. So now we're down to 14. On Christmas Eve, they knew their situation was dire, so someone, and no one alive today knows for sure exactly who, but someone suggested drawing lots and killing whoever draws the longest slip of paper. Their line of thinking was, either they're all gonna die of starvation, or just one of them can die, but the rest might live. So they tear up some paper and draw slips. Patrick Dolan drew the longest slip, but no one could actually bear to go through with killing him. So William Eddy suggested they just carry on, and eventually someone might pass away on their own from cold or starvation, and then they'll revisit the idea if they have to. I mean, that's nice, at least. Yeah, we, we like William Eddy. Well enough, anyway. Anyway, Christmas night, the 23-year-old Antonio froze to death. He could see the fire from where he was, but he just didn't have the strength to crawl close enough to warm up, and weak with starvation, nobody else was strong enough to help him either. So he literally freezes to death, like, feet away from the fire. That sucks. Super sucks. 57-year-old Franklin Graves Sr. was also dying, but slowly, and he knew he wouldn't make it till morning. He had his daughters, Marianne Graves and Sarah Fosdick, with him, and he begged the others to eat him after he died, just so that his daughters would live and they would survive to get help to the others. I legitimately cannot imagine. Like, his dying wish was to be eaten, because he knows it's the only way his kids are going to live. Like, it's tragic, and I literally had to rehearse this, 
a few times to make sure that I could get through it without tearing up and like my voice breaking and sounding terrible. I don't know why, but this just gets me. I don't know. Now we're down to 12. So it hailed that night and another storm rolled in. In the morning, December 26th, Patrick Dolan became delirious and he wandered off into the woods, but they were able to bring him back to camp. He died in his sleep, and that brings us down to 11. December 27th, Lemuel Murphy, just 12 years old, went crazy, screaming and crying for food before passing away, bringing the party down to 10. The next day, December 28th, they finally broke down and ate the dead. Louis and Salvador, the two native men who had come from Sutter's Fort with supplies, refused, and William Eddy ate the bear meat that his wife Eleanor had given to him. But everyone else kind of just did what they had to do, you know? So, Louis and Salvador, who had been kind of guiding the group because they had traveled from Sutter's Fort to the Donner Camp and sort of knew the route a little better than those who had never actually been that way, they told them at this point, with the snow, they were lost and they wouldn't be able to guide them any further. But the group carried on as best they could. They crossed a canyon on December 31st, New Year's Eve. By then, they were out of food again, and at this point, William Foster, quote-unquote, went mad and started plotting to kill and eat one of the women, specifically either Mary Graves or Amanda McCutcheon. William Eddy, who honestly is like the main character of the Forlorn Hope, confronted him about this. So Foster agreed not to kill any of the women, but instead he started planning to kill Louis and Salvador. Eddie couldn't change his mind on that, so he warned Louis and Salvador, who ran away from the rest of the group and escaped temporarily. Some sources indicate that Foster later found them and killed them, but I've been unable to definitively verify that. Either way, they died and the party shrunk to eight. So Marianne Graves later wrote a letter to Levi Fosdick, her sister's father-in-law, and she uses a term that's outdated and like, it's not as bad as the n-word, but I still don't want to quote her without a disclaimer. But she wrote, two Indians were killed whose flesh lasted until we got out of the snow. So it's clear that they were murdered, like not just died, they were straight up killed. It's not 100% clear that William Foster did it, but like... I just think it's fun because didn't white people do the whole thing where they tried to make it seem that like people, indigenous people of color, native people ate people and that's why they were bad but in reality white people are the ones that do cannibalism with this or like when people just ate mummies for fun like yeah white people have a history of eating people and then pointing the finger at other people and saying no they eat people we don't they're quote-unquote savages and all that bullshit like it there is a long and storied history of that and specifically (laughs) they were the only two in the group who refused to eat people by some sources, because they figured, okay, if we break down and start eating people, we know we're next. Yeah. We know these white people are going to eat us. Like, that was their line of thinking, according to some sources. And they were right. Not that they're alive to ask, not that they were alive at the end of this to ask, because somebody killed them and my money is on William Foster, given that he said he was gonna, and then they turned up dead. Yeah. And not just, like, dead from snow or starvation, but murdered, specifically. Because she doesn't say they were found dead, she says they were killed. So that's like, murder number five? Like, it's ridiculous. And I don't blame people for eating them after they were dead, I don't blame them for eating anybody after they die. It's disgusting, but you gotta do what you gotta do. But the act of specifically murdering them to eat them is where I draw the line. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that they probably, since they were starving to death, they probably didn't have too much fat or meat on their bones, so like, they're not getting much food off of these people who are just dying. Yes, but very little food is more than no food. I guess. So on January 3rd, William Eddy and Mary Graves found a deer, and Eddy killed it so they had food again for a while. 
But that food came too late for Jay Fosdick, who, then 23, passed away, leaving Sarah Fosdick a widow and leaving the party with just seven members. On January 10th, they had long since run out of venison when they found a native village. The people there fed them and helped guide them to Sutter's Fort. Despite their help, William Eddy was the only member of the party who could still walk, and not without leaning heavily on two other men. But they helped him to Colonel M.D. Ritchie's house, about 35 miles from Sutter's Fort, where he explained the situation. On the morning of January 18th, several men rode out to rescue the other members of the Forlorn Hope. Of the original 15, only seven survived, two men and five women. On January 19th, William Eddy sends a letter to John Sinclair asking for help, and then travels the 35 miles to Sutter's Fort. Sinclair, Captain Kearns, and Captain Sutter all agreed to help. Sinclair actually writes an open letter to the people of San Francisco, read aloud in the dining room of the city hotel, to beg people for supplies and assistance. Eliza Donner later wrote, Women left the room sobbing, and men called those passing in from the street to join the knots of earnest talkers. All were ready and willing to do, but alas, the obstacles which had prevented Mr. Reed getting men for the mountain work still remained to be overcome. And it's here that our timelines begin to converge, with James Reed, William McCutcheon, and the surviving members of the Forlorn Hope in California, and the rest of the party trapped by Donner Lake. But you'll have to wait until the next episode. So, like, isn't it scientifically proven that women can survive disasters and, like, horrific things better than men? Statistically speaking, yes. Which is why more women survive than men. Yeah, and not to be all, like, biological essentialist or whatever, because, like, trans people exist, intersex people exist. I'm not saying they don't. Generally speaking, people who are assigned female at birth, statistically, generally, but statistically speaking, we tend to have more fat on our bodies, which means we have a little more insulation, which means we do a little better in the cold. Which, which means you'd be better for eating. Yes, I suppose. But it also means that we have more energy stored up that we can kind of take from when we need it. There. Whereas people who are assigned male at birth tend to have a little less fat, a little more muscle. Not that they're stronger or all that, like I'm not. Gender is fake. Um, gender is fake, but your individual gender is valid. But generally speaking, they tend to have more muscle, which burns more energy, and less fat, which means they have less energy stored up. There's also been, like, feminist think pieces that have been written, not so much about the biological stuff of, like, storing a little extra fat versus a little extra muscle, but more so about the, like, stick-to-itiveness and good motherhood stuff, and that's all well and good. And a part of it is definitely, like, with the Titanic, it was like, hey, put the women and children on the boats, the men will hop on later. Basically, what I'm trying to say is your individual gender is valid, but gender as a whole is a social construct. But despite that, for some reason, people assigned female at birth and people who identify as women just tend to do better in crisis situations. Statistically speaking, and broad generalizations, obviously women in the Donner Party also died, but more of them survived than the men, for whatever reason that may be. Anyway... <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Fables Agreed Upon, a historical true crime podcast. If you like this episode, you can find more on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or most anywhere you listen to podcasts, or on our website, which I'll link to in the show notes. Please leave a rating if you feel so inclined. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our username is at FAUpod. That's F as in Finn, A as in Amber, and U as in you, our dear listeners. Our intro music for this episode was Six Cold Feet in the Ground, performed by Leroy Carr in Chicago 1935 and taken from openmusicarchive.org. Our outro music, which you'll hear in a moment, taken from firstworldwar.com, is There's a Long, Long Trail of Winding, performed by John McCormick in 1917. We'll see you in a few weeks, listeners.
Yeah. 